Hello all and a warm welcome from myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, to Corona Bonus number 4, as voted for by yourselves. I hope that the episode finds you all well, if you're not a little stir-crazy by now like myself. However much we may moan though, it is for the best, isn't it folks? You've got to do what you can do. Now if this is the first one of these Corona Bonuses that you've heard, then what I can do, what I've been doing, is putting out for all some of the back catalogue of Patreon episodes of the show. So far for bonuses I've shared the strange tale of the Enigma of Enfield Lodge. I've been back to the scene that's quite near me to rehash the Tinkersdale Woods murder. And I've recounted the tale of one of Crime Watch UK's first successes, the Ambleside Red Scarf murder. As I said, as you guys voted for in the Facebook discussion group. Now when the vote was up, I did choose the top three voted for options. And you guys chose Ambleside, which was out yesterday. You've chosen the Portsmouth Casanova murder, which I've rehashed somewhat and which will be coming to you as the regular show episode this week, because it's like one of my favourite tales ever. And you've chosen this one, a tale that I call Retribution, that was released to Patreon supporters back in October of last year. Triple enthusiast this week, guys, and I hope that helps through these lockdown times. So for this bonus episode then, we're off north of the UK to Scotland, namely to Glasgow, Scotland's most populated city and the third most in the whole of the UK, one that I'm sure the majority of you guys listening will have heard of. It was the city that hosted the world's first recorded international football match between Scotland and England back in 1872. Its residents reportedly have the lowest life expectancy in the country. It's the birthplace of bands and musicians such as Primal Scream, Simple Minds and Lulu. Another notable people who hail from Glasgow include comedian Billy Connolly, footballer Kenny Dalgleish and thankfully now long-dead, evil-murdering scumbag Ian Brady. Today, Glasgow's known as a cultural city, and certainly it's a place that I've always thoroughly enjoyed being in whenever I've been there. But for many years, perhaps somewhat unfairly, it had an unsavoury reputation as being a violent and hard, drug-ridden city. Now, whilst there are still parts of Glasgow that you don't walk into with a certain football shirt on, hard drugs spread like a cancer everywhere, don't they? So it's unfair to tar any particular place and colour it solely with that brush. But it's hard drugs that will feature in this month's bonus episode. The case in question is a tragic and almost unbelievable story, but one that I felt should be told, and as ever on the show... The episode contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting. To that end guys, I advise that you use discretion whilst listening and bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts as for this month's bonus episode, number 22, we look at a case I've entitled, Retribution. It was 1975 and Penny Potterton was just 15 years old when her father died. Now there can surely never be an easy time or age to lose any parent, but at 15 years old it was especially hard and it drew Penny and her mother, Sally Potterton, who were already close, into a still closer relationship. Despite the loss of Robert, who'd been a senior accountant for a large Glasgow transport firm, the warmth and security of the family and the Potterton home were maintained. 
Robert had left his family well provided for in his will, and as Sally had been working as a registered nurse ever since the Potterton's arrival in Glasgow some 15 years before, there were no financial struggles. In fact, Sally was of such intelligence and ability at her job that she was in the coveted position of being Chief of Nursing Staff for a respected and prominent local surgeon. And the family academia shone right through Penny also. An intelligent girl and a diligent student, Penny had the best of everything. Not only was she bright and apt, but she was also pretty and vivacious with it, and was popular with her school friends. She wasn't as outgoing with her friends as perhaps she possibly could have been, but had always enjoyed a close relationship with her mother and preferred to spend the majority of time with her. That was up until shortly after her 16th birthday in 1976, when Sally began to notice changes in her daughter. It began with Penny beginning to wear more makeup than Sally would have liked to have seen on a teenage daughter. The clothes got more revealing and left little to the imagination and Penny began to become more outgoing and more rebellious when at home, answering her mother back with an attitude where she once wouldn't have, using ever-increasing foul language, smoking and basically being the stereotypical delight of a teenager that we all once were, or are of course. Now I don't remember ever being really hateful with my folks, but I did used to rebel and be a bit stroppy, sure, and I did start smoking, where I used to hide my fags in what I believed at the time was the genius hiding place of the empty video case of Death Wish 2 in my bedroom. Because, you gotta think, who better than Charlie Bronson looking after your stats, eh? And my mum still found them, of course. Mums always know. Sally put this change in her daughter down to a phase that all teenagers go through, so she bit her tongue somewhat when she challenged Penny about her new attitudes, only to be answered back that this is what the youth of today were like, they knew best, and the old fogies like Sally were out of touch with the times. You do know best when you're a teenager, so you think, after all, don't you? Penny wasn't in any way unique in this. It was a classic case of teenagers at the time, and so there was little Sally could do about it. There was also little that Sally could do about what else is commonplace with teenagers, especially teenage girls, for Penny had soon found herself an older boyfriend. Maurice Searle was just past 21, and he'd soon turned the younger Penny's head with his motorbike, his bad boy attitude, and his general devil-may-care approach to life. He was already an old head at this modern society that Penny was just about embracing, but in that he navigated through it by the medium of supporting himself through petty theft and confidence tricks. Although he'd never faced any charges or even had his collar felt before, he'd never been inclined to do an honest day's work in his life. He told the impressionable Penny, Why should I be so daft as to work my arse off for 35 quid a week when I can get 45 for not working at all? The sad logic that so many people follow that, isn't it? So Penny's head was well and truly in the shed besotted with this waste of skin, and she could see that Morris was much more in tune with the times than her, as she saw, stuck in the mud mother. However much Sally tried to persuade her daughter that her boyfriend was an absolute waste of an orgasm, Penny was too besotted to listen, and when she turned 18 in early 1978, Penny decided to move out of the family home and in with Morris. 
Although this broke Sally's heart, she felt that she had to give her now adult daughter her own head for a while, no doubt being influenced by Morris, who told Penny that it was high time she separated herself from the system and learned how life should be lived. Sally hoped that a taste of the real world and life with Morris would soon make Penny see what a wastrel he was and she'd come home with a valuable lesson learned. So on the 10th of April 1978, Sally Potterton stood at the curb with a heavy heart as she watched her daughter, a gathering of her possessions in a small suitcase as there was no room on Morris's motorcycle for anything else, climb onto the back of his bike and roar off to begin her new life. Morris had hardly said a word to Sally as he waited for Penny to gather her things together, instead just ignorantly and impatiently revving his motorbike. She in turn spent time looking at him thoughtfully, and while Penny was out of earshot, Sally told Morris that she'd done some checking upon him, and according to what she'd learned, he was a wrong'un. Morris just sneered and told Sally to fuck right off. So unperturbed, she told Morris, her words chosen with great deliberation, If anything happens to Penny, I shall hold you personally responsible for it. I don't want her going with you, but I cannot stop her from doing so. But remember, if anything unfortunate happens to Penny, you will suffer the consequences. Morris was so amused by this perceived threat that he nearly fell off his motorcycle laughing. As Penny came out of the house hurriedly with her belongings and got onto the back of his bike, he glared at Sally, mouthed an obscenity to her, and the pair roared off. It was to be the last Sally saw of her daughter for over a year, and although you can believe that no news is good news, knowing the type of person her daughter had just gone off with, with a heavy heart, Sally was inclined to doubt that this was the case. Meanwhile, the new life that Penny had set off for was less than idyllic, shall we say, and she was really learning the meaning of freedom as practiced in a progressive society. For as Penny had secretly and naively thought that their new life would eventually lead to marriage, a family of her own and a nice home, safe, secure and permanent, she soon came to realise that she still had a hell of a lot to learn about modern morality. She'd moved into the quarters that Morris called home, an abandoned building in the Gorbals area of Glasgow, which offered no running water, no electricity, no heating, there wasn't even a bathroom, a squat, for want of a better word. Any money coming into this existence, be it from Morris's unemployment benefit or the rewards from his criminal activities, would go on petrol for the motorbike, food, alcohol, tobacco and drugs. And just as she was about to admit a disillusionment with this, after about a month, Morris one night told her that they were going to a party the following evening at which she would meet all of his friends. Penny was delighted and a bit relieved at this. She was still so besotted by Morris that she believed any friends of his would be equally as wonderful as him. And to her, it was proof that if he was introducing her to his friends, that he was serious about her. The party was held the following night in the cellar of another of the Gobel's abandoned buildings and Penny found that there were about a dozen or so girls and young men, roughly about similar ages to her and Morris, in attendance. This place was a bit luxe, well, in that it had electricity anyway, and the party-going revellers had set up flashing strobe lights and loudspeakers that were bashing out Floyd, Bowie, The Who, you name it, it was on. 
Dirty mattresses were scattered somewhat artistically at various points around the cellar for people to sit or lie on and the neat whiskey was flowing. Each guest was given a large tumbler of it as they entered. Although Penny thought this was wonderful and this was how exciting the new life she'd hoped for would be, she was a bit startled to note that although the party had barely begun, some of the guests had removed their clothing and were openly engaging in sex upon the mattresses. She was even more startled when another party-goer, a male who looked and dressed more like Frank Zappa than Frank Zappa did, came up to her and began touching it inappropriately. Penny protested loudly, exclaiming that she was with Morris and she was his girl, and looked for Morris to step in and stop this, but he was nowhere to be found. He seemed to have disappeared. The Frank Zappa wannabe took Penny by the wrist and led her around the corner of a projecting wall, where she then saw Morris on top of an auburn-haired girl making love with her. The girl was completely naked underneath him, but Morris had not bothered to remove any clothing, instead had just dropped his trousers to perform. Penny was shocked, stunned and probably unable to believe what she was seeing, but she realised that it was obviously common practice amongst Morris's friends and social group to exchange partners at their parties. This was how the modern world she was so excited to become part of went about. So although she had certain misgivings about this, shall we say, peer pressure was too strong and Penny so desperately wanted to fit in, she got over her misgivings and trying to forget the smell of grime that emanated from a new partner, tried to go with the flow. As the party went on throughout the night, Penny was to meet all of Morris's male friends at the party in this way. And by this time, the effect of being constantly plied with alcohol, the exertions of several sex sessions, and just generally because of the lateness of the hour, Penny found herself struggling to stay awake. And then suddenly, one of the new friends that she'd made that evening approached her out of the darkness and Penny's heart sank. She felt she'd indulged much more than she was comfortable with that evening already and began to protest, explaining to the man that they'd already had intercourse that evening. But it wasn't further sex that the man had in mind right then. He presented Penny with a hypodermic syringe filled with a transparent liquid that he offered to her as though she was to take it. Now Penny was quite bemused with this. She knew of course what it was, but it didn't occur to her what was in it, and it certainly didn't occur to her that she was being offered it for her to take. She even asked the man if he wanted her to inject him, but astonished, he told her that it was meant for her to use. Before Penny even knew what was happening, without any warning, she felt a tight, smooth tourniquet circle her arm, and through her hazed senses, she realised what was happening. They were raising a vein to inject heroin into her. The next day, Penny felt terrible, and she told Morris as such when the pair awoke in the middle of the afternoon back in their filthy squat. She told him she hadn't liked how heroin had made her feel, and that it wasn't something she ever wanted to try again but Morris coaxed the impressionable girl, telling her that she could take his word for it that it was fine, that she'd soon come to see that it was, and she'd develop a taste for it. Morris himself had been hooked on hard drugs, preferably heroin, but pretty much whatever he could get his hands on, for some time by then, and the only reason he'd not already initiated Penny into the use of hard drugs before was pure selfishness. 
before he'd had no desire or wish to protect his girlfriend from something so destructive. The only reason he'd not already introduced her to heroin was that he'd estimated that their income was not enough to support Penny's inevitable habit as well as his own. But now, it had occurred to Morris that young pretty girls who developed an addiction to drugs usually found some way to pay for their habit and there may even be something left over for him. He reasoned that Penny could eventually become a source of the income to buy heroin for both of them, and Morris suspected rightly. As he'd anticipated, due to his influence, Penny sadly developed a taste for heroin, which quickly escalated into a raging addiction, which she was prepared to do anything, absolutely anything, to satisfy. It started by sharing her amongst his friends, but they soon expanded into anybody who would pay, and Penny, so caught up in the grip of heroin, would do anything and so often that Morris found out there was indeed enough coming in for her to support the both of their addictions. This continued to be their existence for more than a year, and as horrific and as alien as it sounds, it became a satisfactory arrangement for the both of them. It was complete order unbelievable is that how awful does that sound it's really just can't get your head around it can you but order it was to this pair right up until the evening of the 29th of july 1979 according to morris it was of course entirely penny's fault now i don't mean that condemning towards her I mean that in the way that a bully or a complete scumbag will always blame anyone but themselves Morris had always given Penny the strictest instructions about taking precautions with birth control and although she'd faithfully complied, perhaps inevitably, Penny had fallen pregnant. Now whether the child was Morris's or one of the many men who she sold herself to to pay for heroin wasn't known but it was that fateful evening when she announced the fact that she was expecting to Morris. There was still a small part of Penny that hoped beyond hope that when he heard the news he'd be overjoyed and he would make her an instant offer of marriage to leave all of the heroin behind and to give Penny and their child the secure and happy home that she so desperately wanted. Instead of being delighted as she'd hoped Morris flew into a fierce rage. Now he'd raised his fists to Penny several times before but on this occasion when he heard of what he classed as her own stupidity, he beat her like never before. Penny was left with both of her eyes blackened, two of her teeth knocked out, and while she was on the floor in pain and in fear, he delivered several vicious kicks to the stomach, possibly thinking that this may be a cheaper, quicker way to bring on the abortion that he wanted her to have. When his violence was sated, Morris continued the abuse by throwing the battered and terrified girl out onto the street. With an air of callousness, he told her he was sick and tired of her stupidity and to add insult to injury, she was getting old and looked a state. Now I despise with a passion any form of domestic violence and when I was researching the case for this episode, my heart went out to Penny here. How someone so manipulative can control and chip away at and then destroy a life to then just cast someone out like that. The one slight thing, the one slight bit of light here was that at that moment Penny was forced to the conclusion that perhaps Morris did no longer love her like he ever had, obviously. 
But she was also inclined to think that maybe just after taking a hiding like that, and it was by no means the first, although he'd never thrown her out before, she no longer loved Morris. In almost an epiphany, Penny picked herself up and began walking with only one destination in mind, the one place that she could go. Penny was going home to her mum. At 11 o'clock that evening, Sally Potterton was awakened by and answered the ringing doorbell to be confronted by what she at first glance thought was a tramp. It took a few moments and the tramp flinging herself in floods of tears onto her mother's chest for Sally to realise that after more than 16 months with no word, her only child had come home. But she was in a terrible state. Not only had she the marks and bruises that Morris had inflicted upon her earlier that evening, but Sally took in the raggedy, filthy clothing that her daughter was stood up in. She noted how her daughter's naturally blonde hair had now been dyed pitch black, and noted how the 16 months that Penny had been away showed like six years on the lines of her face. Sally immediately rushed her daughter straight to the bathroom and as she ran a hot bath for Penny, cut away and threw away the few ragged clothes that she was wearing. To her absolute horror, she saw several needle marks covering the arms, the legs and even the feet of her beloved daughter, so much so that she appeared almost as if she'd been used for target practice by the local darts club. It must have been something that Sally had suspected may have happened and her worst fears come true, but for the moment she said nothing, just glad to have her daughter home. She'd wait for Penny to open up to her about things in her own time. That came later on that evening, as Penny, in the sanctuary of her old bed, wearing clean pyjamas that her mother had lovingly kept for her, told Sally everything about the 16 months that she'd been away. As Sally sat beside her holding her hand, she talked for most of the rest of the night about her life with Morris, everything since the day she jumped on the back of his motorcycle and ridden away in April of the previous year. She was just blunt about everything, there was no effort made to make her life have sounded exciting and even if she had, Sally wouldn't have believed her anyway. It got to the early morning and as much as Sally would have liked to have stayed with her daughter, she had to take herself off to work. Promising Penny that they'd talk more that evening when she returned, Sally kissed her daughter on the forehead, told her that she was safe there and tried to get some rest before leaving to go to the hospital for a shift. Now the minutes of that working day ticked by like hours for Sally, who although was as diligent in her job as always, was preoccupied and anxious to be taking care of things at home. When it finally came to the end of her shift, Sally raced home and back to her daughter. Arriving home and calling through the house, there was no response and there was no sign of Penny, but there was a short note from her lying on the kitchen table. It tragically read, Dearest mother, I have destroyed my own life. There's no way I can ever make things right again. I'm so disgusted with this body that I do not want to live in it anymore. Do not grieve for me. It's better this way. Penny. Panic racing through her, Sally instantly called police. She described the circumstances of her daughter being away and coming home the previous evening and then read them verbatim the note over the telephone. Desperately, she told officers, 
I'm a nurse and you've got to find her at once. I've seen this before. This is a genuine suicide note. She's planning to kill herself. The police did take Sally's call very seriously. They agreed that the note was a genuine declaration of Penny's intent to take her own life. And with a description of Penny given by Sally, an immediate search was launched for the missing girl. Sally, meanwhile, sat up throughout the evening and all through the night, waiting anxiously for the telephone to ring with any news. It was early the following morning that there was a knock on the door at the Potterton household and Sally opened it to find a pair of uniformed police officers stood there on the doorstep. One look at the expression on their faces was enough to tell Sally that her greatest fear had been realised, and almost in a daze, she shortly afterwards found herself in the back of a police car heading down to the police mortuary. The captain of a barge sailing up the River Clyde had early that morning spotted the body of a young woman floating face down between two barges moored to the riverside. It was tragic Penny. That day, the realisation of what her life had become had proved too much for the poor girl to take, and in what was perhaps a desperate last gasp to gain some semblance of her former life back, or to at least carry it into another existence, She'd put on her nicest dress. She then headed to the River Clyde. Sally didn't say anything except for the responses that were necessary for the official identification of Penny, and when it was finished, she left and made her way back home. Now, I don't know if anybody listening has ever been in this position, and I would hope with all my heart that there isn't a soul listening who would know just how shattering doing something like that must be. It's just something I couldn't even get my head around doing. I find it unimaginable. A very close friend of mine has recently, unbelievably, had the same tragedy strike his immediate family twice in the same amount of years, and I saw and I even felt to an extent what it did to him. I of course couldn't be in his shoes exactly, but with him being a close friend that I love very much, I did feel some devastation and pain for him, and that can't even have been a fraction of how he was, so my heart goes out to anyone who ever has. Heartbreaking, that is. Sally got home, sat down, and began preparing a list of the many things that she now had to attend to, first and foremost being the matter of arranging her daughter's funeral. There were a few other certain matters that she had in mind to attend to which would require a small amount of preparation, but not too much, and Sally got on with arranging Penny's funeral, which was held only a few days later. It was a quiet service, with very few attending and mourning other than Sally and a handful of Penny's school friends. There was no publicity or furor, and none of Penny's new friends, Morris and all that lot, none of them attended at all. One reason being that none of them knew that Penny was even dead. Following the funeral service, Sally went home to continue with her preparations and the following evening headed a short distance across Glasgow until she found herself in the quiet neighbourhood she had in mind as a destination. When she found the exact place that she was looking for, she concealed herself in the shadows watching a comfortable-looking, well-kept house that was very similar to her own. The house belonged to the family of one Morris Searle, a family who were as conventional and respectable as Sally was, bar, of course, their wayward son. 
Sally hadn't known exactly where Morris was living. In the final conversation, Penny hadn't imparted exactly which squat they'd been living in, and in such a nomadic lifestyle anyway, he could easily move quickly and often. But Penny had told her mother that Morris sometimes visited his parents when he was on the scrounge for food or tobacco or small amounts of money from them. For all the shite that he came out with about a new way of living and independence and that the youth of today knew best, he'd still quite happily often visit the bank of mum and dad. And Penny had remembered where they lived. Morris had taken her there once, albeit making her wait outside. Sally remained at her vigil, watching the house for four long days, until Sunday, August 5th, 1979, when Morris finally appeared. She watched as he pulled up on his motorcycle, no doubt in her mind that it was him, and remaining in the shadows watching, saw him enter the house. After a short time, Morris emerged and began to walk down the street to his motorcycle, but before he could even turn around, Sally was behind him. It's possible he didn't turn around, and certain that he didn't cry out, he had no time to, and certainly no inclination to. Perhaps it was the unmistakable feel of the barrel of a gun pressed into the small of his back that prevented him from doing so, or perhaps it was the unmistakable threat from a voice that he immediately recognised, saying, If you move or cry out, I shall shoot you through the spine, exactly where this weapon is pointed at. You will be left a cripple for the remainder of your life. He knew that the threat had come from Sally Potterton. Mustering up every bit of courage that he could, Morris asked in a timid voice what Sally wanted, to which she replied, I want you to come with me to see Penny. She is very ill and she wants to see you. Morris, who by this time had turned slightly, enough to see a German army pistol that Sally's late husband had brought back as a memento from the war, pointed very firmly at him, immediately agreed. Not out of desire or conscience or compassion, but you kind of would do at gunpoint, wouldn't you? And as he walked slowly with no idea where he was heading, Sally followed him close behind, walking him at gunpoint to his destination. As he walked along, his initial fright gave way to some self-assurance, and he began imagining the tearful scene that he undoubtedly expected would happen. Penny pleading for him to take her back, in which case he'd promise all and sundry until he could get out of the house, and then be straight off to the police to report and hopefully raise charges against Sally for kidnapping or assault with a deadly weapon, whatever. Before long, Morris realised where Sally was leading him, and as he finally walked towards the steps of the Potterton house, he stopped briefly under command from Sally to take the front door key to the house from her. He unlocked the door and went inside, where Sally herded him up the stairs and into Penny's old bedroom. Of course, of Penny, there was no sign. When Morris asked where Penny was, he was told by Sally that she'd be with him shortly, and then she ordered him to lie on the bed. Morris's self-assurance now began to be replaced again with a fear and nervousness that he'd felt sometime earlier that evening when Sally had first stuck the muzzle of the pistol into his spine and he complied. He could tell from the way she spoke and held the weapon that not only did she know exactly how to use it but she was also very prepared to. Without taking her eyes or the gun off Morris, 
she reached into a bag on the sideboard and removed an object that in the gloom he could not identify, but a moment later he felt the unmistakable prick of an expertly administered injection. Being a nurse, Sally was even more adept at using a needle than he was. But this injection didn't place Morris into the euphoria, for want of a better word, that he was usually accustomed to whenever a needle entered his vein. This one instead placed him out like a light. He didn't even have time to wonder what was happening to him. When he came to an unspecified time later, but what it must have felt like only mere moments to him, he was still lying on Penny's bed. Only now, he was securely bound hand and foot to the bedposts, and Sally Potterton was sat in a chair nearby, waiting patiently for him to awaken. Morris protested, he angrily threatened to kill Sally if she didn't release him, then he implored with her to let him go, and then he finally began to wail and bleat, his fear now omnipresent. Sally did not reply to a single one of these protestations, but instead got up out of the chair and began to busy herself with various tubes and other apparatus which were set up on the table next to the wall. After a short time, Sally once again approached the trussed-up Morris and inserted a needle into his right arm, securing it in place with micropore tape. To this needle, she attached a sizable length of clear plastic tubing, which she extended out and ran into a large glass jar that was standing on the floor to the right side of the bed. Now Morris couldn't see this jar from the position that he lay in, and noticing this, Sally brought over a small table. She placed this table next to the bed and then picked up the clear glass jar and placed it onto it, where he could see it clearly. Morris now noticed that there was a clamp attached to the clear plastic tube, which Sally now opened slightly. A thin column of bright red, rich blood now began to make its way through the tube and slowly began to drip, drip, drip into the large glass jar. Sally looked critically at this flow and then adjusted the clamp so that it didn't drip quite so quickly. When she was satisfied with the rate, almost conversationally, she turned to Morris and said, You remember that I told you when Penny went away with you that if anything happened to her, that I would hold you personally responsible. Well, Penny is dead, but it may be that you are truly sorry, so I'm going to give you a chance to apologise to her personally. Despite Morris protesting that he'd done nothing to Penny and desperately quizzing Sally as to how he could apologise if Penny was dead, Sally didn't answer him. He'd never had a blood transfusion before and he was unfamiliar with the names of the apparatus and equipment that Sally had borrowed from the hospital where she worked only a few days before, but Morris had rapidly grasped exactly what it was doing to him. Before his very eyes, the blood was draining from his body drop by drop. Sally then explained to Morris that he would get his chance to apologise to Penny for his mistreatment of her, for ruining her normal life by introducing her to his own existence, because he was going to exactly where Penny was. Sally told him that they were both heading there, but that Morris was going there first. Settling herself in the chair beside the bed, Sally sat with her hands in her lap, looking at Morris with an expression of what could almost have been release on her face. She then said to him, Beg me. Why don't you beg me? Maybe I'll change my mind about this. Morris indeed begged. 
At first, some part of him still believed this was all an elaborate plan to frighten him like he'd never been frightened before, which had certainly succeeded, and that Sally Potterton had no actual intention of sitting there and slowly watching his body drain of a gallon and a half of blood, so his begging wasn't very hard or sincere. He truly believed that after a short time, Sally would remove the needle from his arm and let him go, a valuable lesson learned and sated for vengeance. But as the minutes ticked by that turned into hours and he watched the jar slowly fill with his life fluid, conviction dawned upon Morris and his pleas and begging became ever more sincere, sincerity not out of remorse but through pure fright. He brought up reason after reason to Sally as to why his life should be spared, his youth, his resolve to change his ways after learning such a valuable lesson, his regret as to how he'd treated Penny and how he'd tarnished her life, the sorrow and loss that his own parents would feel, even appealing to Sally that Penny had loved him and wouldn't want her mother to do this. Morris paraded reason after reason before Sally, who listened intently and calmly to all of them and refused each and every one of them, all by a simple shake of her head and a smile. Occasionally she'd pretend to be impressed by the arguments that Morris put forward, and would make out that she was about to close the clamp that had come to denote Morris's life or death, but she never would, and would sit back down in the chair, telling him his arguments actually weren't good enough, and he should try harder to convince her. It was sometime early in the morning of Monday, August the 6th, 1979, that Morris Searle's pleadings had gotten so faint as to be a barely audible mix of gasps and whimpers, because he'd lost so much blood that he at last knew that he was going to die. As the darkness began to sweep over him, and his eyelids began to close for the very last time, the last thing he was aware of were two fingers at the side of his throat, searching for a pulse that was growing ever weaker. He closed his eyes and knew no more. Morris Searle had paid the ultimate price for his treatment of Penny Potterton. He'd been exsanguinated. Sally remained with her two fingers at the side of Morris's throat, feeling for the pulse, feeling as it slowed, then hesitated, then keeping them there for a considerable amount of time after it had stopped, ensuring that he was dead. When she was satisfied that Morris was finally dead, she leaned forward and with all that she could muster, spat in the face of his corpse, unable to any further disguise a contempt for him. Opening the clamp on the plastic tube wide, she then went downstairs into the hall, where she used the telephone to call 999, to be put through to police. Moments later, as a tape recorder at Glasgow Police Headquarters recorded her message, and the duty officer on the other end of the telephone rapidly attempted to trace the source of the call due to the tale he was hearing, Sally gave a clear and detailed account of exactly what she'd just done and exactly why she'd taken such actions. When she was completely finished in her account, she gave her full name, her address and the name of the victim that police would find when they came. She ended the call by saying, You can come now, but I won't be here. I shall be dead by the time you get here. It was no empty promise either. Just a few short minutes later, police dispatched to the scene by the duty officer who had taken what he could just tell was a very genuine call, found two bodies in the Potterton household. Upstairs, 
Trussed to a bed was the body of a young man completely drained of blood. Downstairs, hanging from a light fitting in the kitchen, they discovered the body of Sally Potterton. She'd kept good a promise to Morris that they were both going to meet Penny. That's a hell of a story, isn't it? And what an incredibly bleak and tragic one. It almost reads like the plot of a film or a TV crime show, doesn't it? Except this is a real case that happened up in Glasgow in the late 1970s. I found it a memorable and remarkable story when I came across it some years ago now, and I have to say, it split me a bit, really. You can't condone murder in any shape or form, can you? Especially such a clinical and premeditated form as exsanguinating someone at gunpoint. But if you face grief such as Sally did and had nothing left to the point where your end game is always to take your own life, then you're not thinking straight at all, are you? And until you're faced with such a dark place, none of us can exactly know how that feels. Hopefully not something that any of us will ever do. I mentioned earlier in the episode that suicide is something that's cast its dark shadow twice over the life of a very close friend of mine in recent years. And whilst I of course won't go into any exact details, I will say that the second time it did was as a direct result of a dark place that the first time introduced. And this was somebody who left behind so much brightness to stay for, but sadly just couldn't escape that dark place. So the point I'm trying to make is that if darkness consumes a person because of an event, a loss, or they feel they just have nothing left, it does cause people to do the most extraordinary out-of-character things. What do you guys think then of the actions of Sally Potterton? Was she a crazed but clinical murderer or a grieving mother pushed too far and determined that the person she blamed for a daughter's death would pay the ultimate price, thinking, how else would the person she believed directly responsible face any form of justice if she didn't dispense it herself? I'd love as ever hearing any thoughts or feedback that you may have concerning the case featured within this month's Patreon bonus episode, which you can do so on the thread on the Patreon site or through any of the show's social media links. You can email me. It's completely up to you guys, wherever you want to do. I know it's been a bleak and incredibly sad tale, this one. And for anyone affected by any issues that have been raised within the episode, or if the episode does hit close to home for any listeners or for someone close to them, then please remember guys, nobody is an island and there is always someone there willing to listen. I honestly can't stress that enough. There will be some helpful links and contact details contained within the episode show notes anyway. So although it's been a bleak one, I hope that you found the episode an informative and a listenable one. I wish I could say that next month's bonus Patreon episode would be a lighter one, but at the end of all of these tales, we're always left with a victim, aren't we? It goes with the territory, I'm afraid, but I shall try and seek out something a bit different for next month's bonus one, I promise. I thank you guys very much for your continued support and I look forward to you joining me for the regular True Crime Enthusiast podcast each week now that the flu's pissed off and the pension plan has settled down somewhat. Until we next speak then, I've been, I still am and still will be Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times and I shall catch you very soon. Take care guys, thanks very much for joining me today and goodbye for now.